This is Alyssa Olenek of Little List Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs. We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in the messy middle. Hello there, everyone, and welcome back to the Messy Middle Podcast. Today, Kate and I are joined by the Brit Fit, Dr. Brittany Malister. Did I say your last name correctly? Really? I feel like I yeah. yeah, okay. No, as we know, as Brit Fit on social media, I should have asked you that beforehand. I've known you for years, but whatever. I butcher everyone's name. But we are so pumped. This is our first interview episode, and like you guys are just in for a treat today. So, Kate, let's introduce the woman herself. You guys, Britt makes the perfect first podcast guest, okay? So to disclose our process a little bit, because I'm crazy about organization, we have our guests fill out a form, and it helps identify you know, some of the messy middle topics and the, the areas that they serve the messy middle so that we can chat about those. Well, Britt lives her entire life in the messy middle, you guys. She straddles the line between academic and entrepreneur. She does part-time teaching, research, coaching. She built a business online, you guys. She competes in bodybuilding and strongman. And then she's a freaking mom on top of it all, you guys. We are so thrilled. Britt, you have so many ands that make up who you are. It's incredible. It's inspiring. We're like amped to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. It's nice to, it's, I'm I'm very honored that I am your first guest. (laughs) So before we dive into today's conversation with Brittany, I think there's an important backstory and reason to one, we, Britt is our first guest because she's fucking fabulous. Also, if you guys didn't listen to the first few episodes, I swear, we all swear. Um, Britt, you're allowed to swear, but I have a, yeah, I have a super, super personal connection with Brittany. So if you guys don't know, out of the whole Science Squad women that is now so big of a network that I don't even, can't even quantify it, Britt is my OG Science Squad woman. So if you guys don't know, Brittany graduated from the same undergrad university that I did. So we both went to Lock Haven University, health science department. Dr. Kurt Dixon led the way for both of us. But when I was a measly little undergrad, and didn't know what I was doing with my life. Brittany didn't even know I existed. She didn't know who I was, but she had just graduated. And I was told I was baby Brit. I was little Brit. I was mini Brit. Like I was following the footsteps of this woman, Brittany. And I didn't know who she was. I'd never met her. All I just know is all the time I was told you're the next Brittany. And then the more I got to know about her and was told about her, I was like, I'm going to be that woman when I grow up. I'm going to be her. And I remember the first time I got involved with research was when you just had started your master's and it was fully funded at Bloomsburg. And Dr. Hiley, I don't know if you've ever met him, but he's at Bloomsburg now, was essentially like I was passed off onto him as his first mentee. And he started telling me all about you and like getting graduate school funded and like that you were getting your master's and you were going to get your PhD. And I was like, I didn't know that was a common thing. I was just like, this woman is incredible. Like, oh my God. But Brittany existing as she was to me, this little measly undergrad, she didn't even know who she was, blazed that path for me and showed me that it was possible. And honestly, just like gave me that permission to go and do these things that I'm doing now. And she had no idea. She was just living authentically as she is. And if you guys haven't met Brittany, then you know that like her existence just does that for everyone. So Brit was important to me and my development as like everything that I'm doing. Um, and so I think it's really important that we both have some very central Pennsylvania, super small college, like no exercise science program, but here we are two of the few female exercise physiologists in this field on Instagram, like just 
overlap of worlds colliding. So Brit is so important to my story. And I thought that's why I think it's so important for her to be here today. But I wanted to give that backstory before we introduce her to say, um, it's really cool to think, and um, the prompting into our first question, I really want to emphasize to you guys that we are two very different people who came from two very uh, similar, one very similar background, but have two very different experiences. And I think that's really important um, as we merge into the first question for today. So Brittany, I'm sorry. I Leslie know I'm Leslie Nope all of our guests. So don't embrace it. I think one of the first things that we wanted to dive in in the Messy Middle podcast is we want to talk about the topics that are really important. And I wanted to lead with that prompt of talking about how we both came from a very small central Pennsylvania school. And we ended up at the same place, but obviously we have two very distinct and different experiences due to just being different people, but just also like cultural differences. So the hashtag Black in the Ivory was created by Sharday Davis and Joy Melody Woods. And this went around viral on Twitter and then Instagram. And I know that you were very aware of it as Kate and I were. And it highlights the experiences of Black people in academia and demands changes of system, system, systemic, oh my gosh, guys, racism that really is infiltrating academia and the spaces that we exist in. Obviously, this exists in the fitness industry and other places too, but you posted on Instagram something that I think is really important is a screenshot from Twitter asking your followers how old the first time it was that they had a black teacher or professor, and you were following it by saying that you were 24 years old and in your seventh year of higher education, and that's why I really wanted to give that background for our audience that we went to the same university in undergrad. We had the not the same identical experience, but as damn close as you can get. And so I think that tying in with that black and the ivory and then how you brought that, because I don't think I had a single black professor at Lockhaven that I'm aware of. And so I thought when you said that, I was like, holy crap, because I had no idea at the time. So can you share a little more with us about your experience um, in education as a biracial woman, you know, from either undergrad or through your higher education and even now? I think that's something that, um, we would, our audience would love to hear more about. Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah. So like Alyssa said, we had, you know, very similar academic paths at Lock Haven. And for those of you who may not be aware, central Pennsylvania is very rural. It is very not diverse. And not only did I go to college there, I'm actually from there. So I grew up in central Pennsylvania. Um, so that was not new to me. Um, so yeah, I would say growing up, I mean, all of my teachers were white and even when I was younger, I would say it, it affected me differently, but it was very much like overt racism, like name calling, things like that. And the, like none of my teachers really like knew what to do about it. And it actually got so bad from my younger siblings that my parents put them in private school somewhere else because, the teachers would brush it off as like, oh, it's just like kids being kids when it was, it was racism. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the experience I had like before I went to college. And when I got to college, it was, I was expecting more diversity and it was more diverse than my hometown, but it was still very much not diverse because I, was, I wasn't going that far. It just because of it being college, it was bringing people from the city. Like a lot of students at Lock Haven are from Philadelphia. Um, so there was some diversity in that. But even so, every single professor I had, I didn't have a single black professor. And I actually had a, a minority scholarship to go to Lock Haven. And so I quickly like 
came together with other minority students through that scholarship program because we were all funded through that. Um, so like that was a cool opportunity for me, but then that was really the first time that I was met with, um, almost like jealousy that I was, had this scholarship and that it was, it was because it was promoting diversity and I didn't really know like what to do with that. And I've experienced that multiple times throughout my education, whether it be scholarship or an award or programs that I'm in or anything like that. Um, and in undergrad, I didn't really think much of it because, you know, Dr. Dixon was really supportive and he was really, he wasn't my advisor originally, but then I had switched to him when I got really into research. And, you know, he was all for me going for my master's and really supportive and stuff. And he never made it like, I'm going to help you because you're a little black girl. And like, he never made it like that for me. So when people would say things like that, it made me so angry because I'm like, no, I'm this, this is happening for me because I'm working my ass off. And like no one else in our department is doing research. No one else is here at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning doing all this stuff. Like I'm doing this because I'm working hard. So, I mean, that was my kind of my experience in undergrad. And then I would say when I got to UMass, so after I did my, I did my master's at Bloomsburg, which is about, you know, like an hour and a half from Lock Haven. I was still very much in Pennsylvania. And even there, it was still like, like there was, there was another black student in the program who was like a first year and I was the second year, but like, that was it. Everyone else was white. And, um, I remember someone in the program asking my best friend if they could use the N-word around me. And I was like, this person was getting a master's degree. Okay. Like they were intelligent and they were in my program and they were at, they actually like had the audacity to ask that. And I just was like, I thought that I was like leaving that behind. I don't know. I guess, I guess I just thought that as I got older, that that would continue to go away. But I mean, I had multiple experiences in college and in my master's too of like guys that I dated who were like, I could never bring you home because you're black and stuff like that. But that's the kind of area that I was in. But again, all of my, all of the faculty that I was around were very supportive and they never made it about that. And then the American College of Sports Medicine was like the conference that we all went to and that was the only time I've ever met Alyssa in person for like five seconds. And I was like a fangirling junior. Like, I like didn't talk to her. I was like yeah. so shy. I was yeah. like, oh my God, it's Brittany. <laughs> but they had a, so the ACSM has a program called the Leadership and Diversity Training Program, which is, which is essentially, you know, matching up younger scientists with older scientists who are doing the same research that they do. And it's to promote diversity in the students because ACSM is very like old, like old white men. And, um, so I was a part of that program and like what you got as part of that was, um, you got your, your time at ACSM funded. However, that meant you had to go to like everything like with your mentor. So I was exhausted. I was just like running around ACSM, doing all these things. But again, no one ever made it like a bad thing. It was only the only people I got that from were actually my peers. So like other graduate students. Um, 
And that was just really like eye-opening to me until I got to UMass. And then at UMass, I had my first black professors. So there was a, a black professor in my department, and there was a black professor who was in the epidemiology department. And both of them were on my dissertation committee. And uh, I had both of them actually my first semester at UMass. I took a biostatistics class with the, with the epi professor. And um, the other woman, she was in my department, and she did pediatric physical activity research. So it just kind of made sense that both of them were my mentors, like unofficially, I guess. Um, and UMass was obviously a much bigger program and there were a, a lot more things that came to light, I guess, when I, when I saw the black and the ivory hashtag and some of the stories that were uh, being listed on there, I was like, oh yeah, that definitely... The thing we had a really great graduate student union, which helped a lot. So I would say there was nothing from a university level. It was more within, you know, peer groups and within some faculty. Like uh, just to give an example, I guess um, there are there's certain funding mechanisms where you are funded to you know, do this one thing. You guys know this. You're either funded to like teach or you're funded to do research. And there are external funding or even internal funding that you can get where it's like you don't have, you can do whatever you want. It like covers you. And it's usually you're doing research for yourself or maybe it's when you're collecting data for your dissertation or whatever. You don't owe the department anything. It was very common in departments that you, I'm not name dropping the school. It's very, it was very common that, you know, even if you had that funding, that you were still expected to do beyond that. And I know that that's an issue, like not just with minority scholarships, but it was almost treated like, oh, well, you'll be covered from this funding source. So we don't have to worry about paying you, but you're still going to be expected to do all of this other work that wasn't being funded. And it was like, wait a minute. So I'm doing the same amount of work as my lab mates, even though I got this amazing funding opportunity that I earned, but I'm still going to be expected to do twice as much. Like that doesn't make sense. And so that happened to me and it happened to a lot of people. And I think that was one thing that I didn't even really realized that, that it was wrong at first because I was just so grateful to be in a PhD program. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm so honored that this faculty like chose me to be his first student. Like, and I didn't really question it. So yeah, I would say that that was like the biggest thing that I, whenever I saw that hashtag, I was like, oh yeah. And I mean, I certainly have, I think had less negative experiences, um, because I am often white passing. So it's, I'm biracial for those of you who can't see me right now and are listening to this and don't know me, but it's one of those things where people who have been in diverse, around diversity know that I'm not white and white people who have never been around diversity don't know what I am. They're, they're like, I don't know what, if she's white, like, I don't really know, but like black people always know that I'm mixed. So it's, it's, it creates this kind of weird dynamic for me um, that I often have to say, like, like when people tell me I'm tan, I'm like, well, I'm actually, I'm, I'm black. But <laughs> um, so yeah, it, that's just been my experience, but I definitely have friends who have experienced much more like 
overt racism. And um, I think that I unfortunately was kind of lucky in that I didn't experience as much. One, because I'm a woman and also because my skin is lighter, which is so wrong that that is even a thing. But I really I really do feel that way. Yeah. It's it's crazy to hear your insight of saying that like even some of those hashtag stories were like realizations for you or like connecting moments for you to be like, oh, wait, that happened to me. I didn't and you didn't even because I mean, I can't relate to being like any other sort of ethnicity or minority population in grad school, but you get these goggles when you first start where you're like, I'm so lucky to be here. I'll do whatever you say like this. Like you, you have that imposter syndrome that thinks that like, it's just chance that you're there. So you're afraid to challenge anything that, and so I can only imagine you're reading those hashtags and being like connecting those dots. That's really powerful that like that for you was like a, such a, you like realize that in that moment, which is also very sad. <laughs> like it yeah, took, it's the it took pervasive. that. It's toxic culture that tells you, you know, you're lucky to receive whatever you do. And so when you are misserved and mistreated and expected to do more, uh, and, and not receive funding for your work, you know, uh, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't read as a red flag to you when it should. And I, and I, I think the movement and, you know, of black and ivory and just in general America waking up to the reality of this pervasive racism that like that is starting to become, you know, something to keep in mind and be aware of for the younger generations that are coming up, which is important. Yeah. And I mean, something I didn't even talk about here is like not having any, any people of color as professors or mentors for six years like I, all of my like formal mentors were white men and nothing against them, but like, they just didn't have the same experience that I did. Yeah. So and they couldn't I, I, do yeah, that, like, like, guidance. yeah, yeah, I couldn't even like, it was, I think it honestly made my imposter syndrome a little worse as if it's not bad enough in grad school, but it was like, I couldn't even like see myself not only because there are no people of color, but there are also like, it's very male dominated, like faculty at Lockhaven. It was there, there were more female faculty by my master's. There was one faculty member and she was more biomechanics. So I didn't really even work with her because we didn't have the same research interests. So it's one of those things that if you don't see people doing the things that you see yourself doing that look like you not that you can't do it but it certainly makes you question it more than if I were to see you know the whole faculty with black women I would have been like oh yeah hell yeah like I can see myself in these people yeah more than you know older white men it's really like powerful and awesome now looking back to see how much I think you know, we have evolved and grown and changed since undergrad, but also probably ACSM for those who are listening to this and you're not in exercise physiology or you're in like a, a neighboring field. Um, ACSM, exercise physiology, these fields are, and like, it's not anything I've had amazing white male mentors, um, but it's a very, it's a boys club is essentially what it is. And it was really, I mean, for me, my first female mentor came when I graduated, um, my, my undergrad and I did a research position, I got put on this postdoc and I was like, and I didn't realize how much I needed that until I had it. And I think it's awesome to hear about your experience at ACSM that year that I met you because Dr. Nicole Keith is the president of ACSM right now and she's a black woman. And that's, I don't think like that was not a thing 
five, six, seven years ago. And so I can only imagine like if you had seen her in that position at that point in time, how, how just meaningful that would have been. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. She actually, she created that program that I was talking about, the leadership. Oh, did she really? Yeah. She was the one who, who created that because she, um, whenever she started coming to these conferences, I mean, it's a lot, ACSM is a lot, it's not diverse by any means, but it's more diverse than it was 20 years ago. And she said like, she was the only black person in the whole like conference. And I was like, I, you know, that's, that's really intimidating, I'm sure. And she had a fantastic white male mentor. It wasn't anything like that, but she saw a need for that and obviously has done very well in investing in that cause for ACSM, which I'm really grateful for. But yeah, you need people like that to like trailblaze essentially. She's a hundred percent. She's like the ACSM trailblazer. Like that's yeah. her. That's amazing. The Michelle Obama yeah. of ACSM. Yes. <laughs> That's actually such a great comparison. I love that. <laughs> yes. Um, on this topic, when we're talking about mentorship, I, we did have some listener questions uh, coming from Alyssa's Instagram. And we had one along the, the lines of what advice you would give to, you know, the younger version of yourself or perhaps other black or biracial students navigating higher education now. Um, I would say don't be afraid to seek out additional mentorship. So depending on your individual experience, like I had a really great, really great experience with my primary advisor. Um, I, I just got lucky with that. I mean, I was particular about who I wanted to work with, but he was someone that I could go to for multiple different things. Um, But I couldn't talk to him about my experience as a black woman, really. I mean, I could, but he wouldn't get it. So um, I think kind of like how you have, different friends you go to for different things. I think having different faculty or mentors that you go to for different things is also really important. Um, Like, and I created my committee this way kind of too. Like, you know, I had my primary advisor and then I also had this other person who mentored me on more of like a personal level, but also did the research that I was interested in. And then I had someone else who mentored me with statistics because that was like a pain point for me. So I think creating a well-rounded mentorship is really important. Um, And then also seeking out additional support outside of your department. So for me, that was the organization that I had my um, fellowship through. So we had like monthly dinners for that. And the director of that program was fantastic. Um, And she was so, so, so supportive and was willing to meet. And it was kind of nice because... It can be nice to talk to someone outside of your field. She was in veterinary sciences, I think. So she had, like, she was not an exercise scientist, but she was, I mean, a really successful faculty member. So just hearing other experiences from students in other departments, I think, is actually really important. It can be, it can be instinct to kind of like stick in your immediate department and only see the people that you, you know, walk by every day. But I think there's something to be said for expanding on that and seeking out additional mentorship if you don't feel like you're you can go to your advisor for everything which is totally normal and okay for a while I was like oh did I like choose the wrong and but like one person can't be everything for you especially during your PhD they are mentoring multiple students they have their own things to worry about they're trying to get tenure like it's okay to seek additional mentorship 
Sorry. Especially with yeah. amazing, smart, talented women on Instagram that have PhDs. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. 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 So real. You know, it's so interesting. I, I talk to people now and they, I think they see Alyssa, your experience, and they think that that is like, stand like normal PhD experience and I'm like no she's like a powerhouse but like most PhD students don't have that experience they're not like it's not the same like I didn't know any now on Instagram I feel like I've found a lot of like non-traditional PhDs but like I didn't know anyone before like no no one I knew of Lane Norton and that was it (laughs) yeah and I'm really fortunate where my mentor works in industry as well so like I like just like I can't, I, no one has my experience. Cause it's just, I got really lucky. I thought it out, but also like luck plays a big role into all of this. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's just, it's just so interesting to see now that like, um, I guess more people are, are seeing what it's actually like to be in it, which I think is great. I wish I would have seen it more <laughs> before I like got into it. Cause I had no idea. I was like, Oh, like comp comps. What's that? Like I, it, Here's the real behind the scenes of what yeah. it actually looks like to get a PhD. Yeah. yeah I which I think is really cool. But yeah, definitely it, mentorship can come in so many different forms. And I think the more that you can get of that, the better experience that you'll have. And that's not a, like anything on you. That's not like saying that you can't handle it. It's just, it will just enhance your experience. You, I don't, you cannot get through your PhD without other people. Cause if you grit your teeth long enough, you're gut, you can't, you like, you, it's, I tried it that first year and I almost died until like, you know what I mean? Until I had you guys and I was like, oh, this is so much easier. So listen to Britt. Britt knows what she's talking about. That's that's really like empowering advice, I think. And it's funny that you mentioned that because one of the things that like drew me to you, because I didn't have this, you know, background and I just kind of linked up with everyone on Instagram. And one of the things that I first saw from you that I was like, oh my gosh, this woman gets it is you posted a blog post about your yeah like way back <laughs> a blog post about how you know you didn't want to pursue the traditional tenure track in academia and that you were you know enthralled by having a little mix and match of everything and that that really is what filled you and i loved your willingness to speak up about how like the the tenure track wasn't for you. Cause I feel like that's so pushed, especially when you are currently in academia, that might've been like the only thing you hear about, the only thing you think you can care about. And you really planned like a messy middle career that involves <laughs> teaching in an academic setting while also coaching and being an entrepreneur. So I would love to hear more about how you came to create this unique space for yourself. It was honestly an accident. I can say that. <laughs> a um, happy landing. Yeah, it, it, it was a good thing. It ended up being a good thing, but um, I, I thought that I wanted to be a professor. Like, that was originally my plan. I, it wasn't like I always knew that I was going to end up doing this non traditional thing. Um, when I started my PhD, is when I like knew I was like, hey, you know, this is why this is why I'm getting my PhD because you need a terminal degree to go as far as you can as a faculty member. So I was like, okay. And that was also when I started bodybuilding. Was like right when I moved to UMass was when I started bodybuilding. And I really started to get more interested in that aspect of it and of exercise science, I guess. Um and so I became obsessed with bodybuilding and I went to bodybuilding.com and I was, you know, researching all these different careers it was part of the, um, diversity men- fellowship that I had. One of my friends hosted this non-traditional career paths in STEM workshop. 
And we had to fill out, it was like a career thing that was like, this is my ideal career. And like, these are the characteristics that it has. And then you like match, it matches you with all these different careers that you might want to do. And it was specifically for STEM students. So one of them that I found was science editor. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds really cool. And um, I went, uh, the person who was in charge of that fellowship program, who I mentioned earlier, this woman who was just fantastic, she we had some funding available through that fellowship to travel to different things. So she funded my trip to bodybuilding.com and I got to go to headquarters. Yeah. It was amazing because I, like I was like, told her, I was like, I think this could be a really, really cool career for me. There's a woman who does science editing for bodybuilding.com and I would love to go out there and just shadow her. So I did. And it was amazing. And I loved it. I was like in little bodybuilder heaven and um, they, Long story short, they ended up offering me a position of the science editor because the, the person who was doing it was going to be leaving. And I had just finished data collection for my dissertation, which I did an intervention. So once data collection is like, once the intervention yeah, is the over, like, over. <laughs> yeah, like all that's left to do is write it up, right? And all that's left to do. <laughs> yeah, it took me like a year and a half. um, (laughs) my advisor was like oh like I'm not he wasn't not supportive but he wasn't like super keen on that I'd have to move across the country before I was finished writing and um so I I I basically told him that I was like listen like uh it's not really a great time for me to physically move um it's just not good timing so what they ended up doing was offer me an adjunct position. And I was like, awesome. Okay. So I worked adjunct for them, hoping that, you know, this position was going to still be available when I did finish my PhD and I could move. Well, it wasn't. And I had like no job, like nothing was really (laughs) appealing to me. Like I did some job searching and some position, like nothing was lining up with what I wanted. I was like, I do not want to move somewhere for a position that I don't really want. I'm either going to stay here and like draw out my PhD or what, like I'm going to figure something out, but I refuse to move somewhere that I don't want to live to do a job that I don't want to do. So what ended up happening was during my PhD, my advisor got two NIH grants at the same time and he was a newer faculty. So that's like a pretty big deal. And we were doing a ton of work for one of them. Like I did so much work to my PhD as an RA. This was totally separate from my dissertation, like getting this project ready. And the year that I would have been leaving would have been the year the project was starting. So it ended up working out that I was able to stay and do a postdoc on that project, which was with the sociology department and the nutrition department. Um, So I stayed another year. And during that year, I was kind of like, I really don't want to apply to tenure track positions that like solidified it for me. I think it was just like being like, so in that grant writing data, like it's just something about being in that environment for me was like, I don't want this. Like everyone was just, I mean, for those of you who aren't, haven't been in PhD program that are listening to this, it's just can be very high stress when you're constantly having to worry about getting funding and um, executing research on top of a teaching load and mentoring. So it just is a lot of pressure. And I was noticing that, you know, the higher up that you got in that. So when you start getting the grants, the less that you actually get to do the work, 
which is the part that I liked. I liked collecting data. I liked talking to people. Like I'm a, I'm an extrovert. I'm a people person. I like doing that. And I just realized that the further away you get, you don't get to do that anymore. And I was like, that's not what I want to do. Like I want to mentor students. Like I like teaching. I don't want to be behind my computer writing grants all day. I just don't want to do that. So um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just kind of had faith that it would, something would work out. And then um, this position opened up at a college that was, you know, right down the road from where I was at UMass. And um, it was part-time. And I was like, oh, that's kind of perfect because then I can keep training people because I've been training, I was training people in person this whole time. Um, and I can, you know, start my online business officially. Cause I was kind of doing stuff. Like I had a personal Instagram page that I was like half sharing my own journey and like kind of promoting science, but like didn't really feel comfortable doing one or the other. And, um, yeah, so I had the interview for this job that I have now and found out I was pregnant at the same time. So I found out I was pregnant the night before my interview. Um, so it actually was like a lot at once. Yeah. So, um, found out I was pregnant, had the interview, got the job, um, which was, this was like April and my contract for my postdoc was until July. Um, but I ultimately decided to end that early. So I finished up my postdoc and my job started. And then I started Docker at fit like that same time and continued training people in person, started teaching, had a baby, and that pretty much brings it to now. So yeah, it wasn't super planned. I just, I I knew that I I was feeling some resistance to tenure track types of positions. And I think I was kind of scared to admit that at first, because it is so, like everything that you do during your PhD, for me, I mean, my program was this way. And I think some other programs make this way as well. That's like the only thing they're really preparing you for. It's not like, like some other, like in my department, there was a lot of biomechanists who ended up going into industry, like working for, you know, shoe companies like New Balance or Nike or whatever, doing biomechanics type of research. But for anyone else, like that was not really a thing. Um, And it wasn't that people were against it. They just didn't know anything about it like my advisor wasn't against it it just was something that he he did academia he did a traditional you know academics are prepared to push out academics you know that's yeah Yeah. so I like I really didn't want to disappoint them I didn't want to disappoint any of my mentors and you know looking back I I wish I wouldn't have been so fearful of that because ultimately it's my life. <laughs> and that's also advice I guess I would give anyone who's pursuing any type of academic journey right now is like your your mentors are there to help you get to where you want to go. So make sure that you're clear about that from the, as soon as you figure it out, you know, and it's okay if that changes, but don't it's worry about us. it. Britt is talking to us. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, no, I resonate so much. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's, Especially like for me, like I didn't have anyone like you guys in my program. Like I didn't have anyone who did not want to do an academic tenure track postdoc, like no one. I don't know a single person. (laughs) So it was really isolating and really hard to be like, I don't, I want to do this other thing that no one else around me wants to do. And 
I don't see the point in applying for all these grants and I don't want to do like I just didn't feel as motivated to do some of the things that other students in my department were doing, which they needed to get to where they were going to go. Like they needed to do that. You guys are always asking me, Liz, what the heck do you do on your long runs? And Kate has recently converted me to Audible. With Audible, I'm able to combine my two favorite pastimes, running and learning. If that isn't the most Alyssa thing, I don't know what is. I know, right? So Audible has helped carry me many, many miles with audiobooks and podcasts. And the best thing about it is I'm able to download them directly to my phone and listen to them while I'm offline, running through the woods in the middle of nowhere with no self-service. And since I have a reading list approximately as high as I am tall, there's no other way I'd be able to consume so much with how busy I am. That's exactly why I love Audible. I've been a member for years now because I honestly cannot read enough books if I have to sit down to read them all. Audible has been a godsend because I can listen to audiobooks while I'm cooking, working out, or walking my pup Rocky, but my favorite way to use Audible is as I'm going to sleep, and you guys, I recently found out that Audible has bedtime stories narrated by none other than Nick Jonas and Tony Shalhoub, who you may know as the character Monk. Their voices are like so perfectly sultry and like they really guide you off to sleep. It's incredible. So every month, members get one credit to pick any title, no matter the cost, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digest and guided meditation programs, dare I say, by no other than the Pete Diddy himself. If that doesn't scream littlest meditation, I don't know what does. The Audible app is available on all smartphones and tablets, and you can download titles to listen offline anywhere and anytime. You can start listening today with a 30-day trial. You get one title plus two Audible originals for free when you visit audibletrial.com slash messy middle. That's audibletrial.com slash M-E-S-S-Y-M-I-D-D-L-E. Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high-quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I have been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they are fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed by what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MESSYMIDDLE at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. That sense of like you're a failure if you don't stay in science or people who work in industry are failed scientists. And you're like, we need people who are doctorate levels education doing work in the the front lines of the fitness industry just as much as we do need them behind the scenes. It doesn't make you have, but there's that sense of like, oh, well, you're not, you're not cut out for science. You're going to go do this. And you're like, well, no, like the people that are in those labs, like 
doing yeah. that work couldn't do the work that we do. Yeah. And like we all need each other. Like, but there's, yeah, there's, there's that, like, that narrative. There's a sense of hierarchy and really what I've, and I think some people still think that way, but I, I do think that's changing. Um, and I do think that people, they're need, scientists are needed in so many different ways that the traditional, you know, one route is success as a PhD, I think is, you know, not going to be happening, especially considering like the amount of academic positions that are even available. So yeah, it's, it's just way different. And I think that's even changing like the past, since I started my PhD, like six, seven years ago. So. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to take a major pivot because that sure. was some heavy postdoc <laughs> PhD academic life stuff. So yeah. our followers that are not aware of what that's, I, I, we have, I have a ton of followers who are like, tell me how to survive this phase of my life where they're looking into it. So this is so important, but you also are more than just a scientist and an academic, and we're going to take a major pivot. So as our audience hopefully is aware, I have actually had asked me if I had kids a few weeks ago and I was like, you ever seen posted on having kids? I think they were thinking of your page, but Kate and I are not mothers. I was like, this is awkward. No, no kids over here. Um, Kate and I are not mothers, obviously, um, but you are known for essentially raising the bar and the standards and challenging and fast. Like you're like, like the whole fitness industry is a kind of a mess, which is probably why we need more scientists in, in it. <laughs> yeah, um, how about it? <laughs> no, and we know that it's messy for women. And I think all of us in our little niche is like are together raising that. But you specifically have, you know, you're a, you're a woman with a PhD in kinesiology, and you're a new mom, but you're also just launched your program. Like you, you've basically niched in and you're like, Hey, listen, mom's prenatal pregnancy, postnatal, you're going to like one, you know, you're going to be mom for, for the rest of your life. This changes you, but you're raising that bar and standard of fitness for that niche of women, which I would argue is probably the, probably the worst and most underserved aspect of what women get. And it's actually, it, it's terrifying some of the messages we hear. So what are the most common and extreme messages that you hear that are placed around pregnancy and exercise and like what you feel like you're fighting the most against within these women? I think so. It's such a mess. And I honestly, I didn't, I, I thought about, I almost went to a PhD program. Like I, I it was in between like what I was going to study my PhD and I was really interested in studying pregnancy actually, but the people I wanted to work with just weren't accepting students. So it's kind of funny that I've come around full circle to this because when I became pregnant, I realized like how much mis, not just mis misinformation, but like lack of information and guidance there are for pregnant women. Like I remember having an appointment with my OBGYN when I got pregnant and Alex, my fiance was with me and he's also my, was my strongman coach. So like he was really familiar with what I was doing. And I remember asking her like, what can I do for exercise? Like what's safe? Like what, you know, can I continue? Like she's like, Oh, just continue doing what you're doing. And I was like, um, I trained strong, man. I don't really think that I should continue to lift Atlas stones over my stomach. Like <laughs> not that, not that every physician should know what strong man is, but I just think giving more guidance than like continue what you're doing is needed. Um, and for me, an exercise professional to not have any more context in that was like aggravating to me. So I did the research myself, which I think a lot of women probably wouldn't have done. Like 
if you weren't really interested in exercise like me, I don't know that you would just go out and seek additional certification and learn more and try to help other people. So I felt the need to do that because no one else was. I mean, since you're a superwoman, yeah. let's be real. <laughs> since, 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 I've, since I've done that, I found a lot more like great accounts that have more great information, but I really had to look. The only thing that I saw was like, Sally Fitzbo gets pregnant and posts her pregnant workouts, like different workout every day, you know, typical Fitzbo stuff, but it's pregnancy safe. And that was it. There was no guidance. I never saw anyone talk about like the pelvic floor, nothing. And it was just really frustrating. So it's this like range of just continue what you're doing or do whatever you want. And really the truth is somewhere in the middle because not everyone can not everyone should be doing nothing unless you have any like, you know, contraindications to exercise or anything, but you can't just continue training or you shouldn't just continue training. Like you are not pregnant. Um, and that is kind of where I feel like I am trying to, to come in and help women navigate that because not only during pregnancy, but then immediately after it's, you know, lose the baby weight. Let, let, let me help you lose the baby weight. It's this stupid programs and it's all about that. And there's no rhyme or reason to anything that these people are doing. Um, and a lot of times it's these really large communities. So I did find like some programming that was really great, but it was like thousands of people were buying. It's just like you buy the program and then you do it on your own. And then there's a Facebook community, but no one's moderating the Facebook community. It's just like other members. So it's like other moms who probably don't know anything about exercise giving advice to the moms. And I'm like, this doesn't really make sense. So that's kind of why I created my program because it's essentially like group coaching, but it's not like, I'm not going to make it so big and so large that I can't give someone the answer to an individual question, you know, at any given time, because I don't want my community to be thousands of women with again no guidance just yeah. kind of doing whatever you know I know I, I think that you're doing something similar I mean we we chat yeah, I help yeah. you with your stuff yeah but I think a lot of people are like they'll ask me and I'm sure you'll get this is like why don't you keep your community open for open enrollment I'm like I don't want my Facebook group to become a misinformation cesspool because I can't keep up with it and I don't think people realize like especially because I'm assuming the, the experience you had is because people assume women only train really easily. So like, yeah, you can do whatever you want through the rest of pregnancy. They don't consider that women might be training how we, all three of us do. Because I think that's the unfortunate assumption of how women exercise. But then it falls into that assumption afterwards that women only want crash diets, weight loss, all these things. And then if you don't moderate that and help bring women and educate them and coach them, then they're going to just keep like that's a it's the same trap painted a different color yeah is essentially what it yeah. becomes yeah yeah and i think we've discussed oh sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say it's it's just a shit show it's like it's yeah yeah because part part of the problem i think that we discussed in a previous episode is women being underrepresented in research like making them a target for pseudoscience and misinformation and like add pregnancy on top of it. And pregnant women are considered a special population when it comes to research and I think, you know, some of our listeners might not know this, Brittany, um, could you explain like what it means to be a special population in research and why it's an additional barrier to getting science-based recommendations for pregnant women? Sure. So in, in research, having to try to study a special population essentially means you have to overcome 
a million more steps in order to get that population into the doors to do your research because they're at higher risk for something happening, something, some negative outcome happening. So with pregnancy, there's such a limited research and such poor, not poor recommendations, but the recommendations for exercise specifically is very limited because you don't want to push a pregnant woman to a point, you know, too far and that exercise becomes a negative part of their pregnancy. So I actually have my, my roommate from my master's got her PhD in kinesiology and she studied physical activity in pregnancy. And I remember sitting with her at a conference before I, right before I knew I was pregnant and her lab mate was presenting data all about physical activity in pregnant women. And it was all walking and running. And I remember asking her, I'm like, after the, the talk, I was like, is there research about strength training in pregnant women? Like, why is it that all this is always about, you know, walking and running? Like, why? And she was like, pregnant women are really fearful of strength training during pregnancy. I was like, really? I was like, I feel like it could be so empowering for pregnant women to feel strong during pregnancy, to feel strong, to carry their belt, like the, as their belly's growing. And I just was like, huh. And then like two weeks later, I found out I was pregnant and then got really into it after that. But she said that that's the biggest thing is when she brings people in to do their exercise programs, they, their primary concern is keeping their child safe, keeping their baby safe. So if women, women are scared of that and they're considered a special population, it's from both ends. So even in study, even studies that are testing pregnant women or trying to recruit pregnant women, pregnant women are going to be scared to then participate in those studies, which doesn't further the research at all. This means there's less smaller sample sizes, less studies being done, lower quality work being put out there. And then it takes tons and tons of them to actually come up with a recommendation because you don't get a recommendation from one study. You have to repeat it. You have to have long-term follow-up. You have to have all these things that are just, like, it's just barrier after barrier. So then the field takes so long to move forward. That's why people still don't completely buy into the idea that strength training is even safe in pregnant women. They're still like, mm, but is it? Like how many studies have been done? And truth be told, there aren't like compared to other, I mean, females are underrepresented in general, but even less pregnant women are going to be studied. So it's it's really hard to move any field forward when you are studying a special population. And a lot of it is comes down to trust, whether it's in pregnancy or in racial minority groups. Trust is also an issue in the scientific community. So trying to get black mothers in to do these sorts of studies is going to be even harder than than any of that. So it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And I think it's easy to sit back and critique, you know, why research is the way it is and how it's understudied. And it's like, yeah, but we need to address it or it's just going to keep, it's just going to keep happening unless we actively try to recruit more women or, you know, not do studies that don't have any women participants. Unless, like you say, like that's important or else it's just going to keep happening and the field is going to get stuck without having more research in it. Yeah, I think I'm not just to add to this because I think this is an important conversation. So I feel like I had the opposite experience as a lot of people where my master's was like the most diverse experience I've ever had. So for those who don't know, I did a research project on black and white women for my master's thesis and I helped out with pregnancy research. Like my master's was like with women who had babies and we studied women and like it was just 
it was not a real experience. No one has that. But with pregnancy research specifically, I mean, I watched Dr. Rachel Tinius, who was one of my mentors and my masters. She does amazing work out of WKU. But when she first got involved there, I mean, to get the IRB to approve these things, she had to get in with the doctors in the hospitals and they had to like get safe with her. We had to have a nurse on our team to do all the blood draws and have to be there at every single session just in case something happened. And then she did like community exercise-based interventions, but she had to get in with these, these exercise studios and then get women to trust her. And now she's doing great because of word of mouth and everything like that. But I watched that all happen. And it's, it's easy to criticize research, even like when people are like, well, we'll just study more women. I'm like, you know what I do it. And it's really hard. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's hard. And I'm just doing like normal non-pregnant women. But when you add that extra layer of it, I mean, if anyone submitted an application to an IRB, they don't let you do anything ever about anything. Like you have to like really, really solidify your, the safety of your participants. Like that's so important. And especially with like pregnant women, I watched that. I was like, wow. I mean, they did a fantastic job and she's doing great work on the recruiting, but it, she had to get a lot of connections within that to build that trust in those communities and the doctors and the women to get them come in. And I mean, I've watched pregnant women. I mean, I watched pregnant women, my whole master's do burpees and run. I watched them do VO2 max test and clock in like 57s with like in their second trimester. I'm like, this changed my view on women entirely. But I'm like, I'm like, this is incredible. But also this isn't happening other places. Like this is, this is a very, very unique thing, but you need, I mean, she had to go in and spearhead all of that against a ton of resistance to make it happen. It wasn't like she walked in, she's like, I want to research women. And they were like, oh yeah, that needs to be done. So let's do it. It was like, eh, are you sure? Like, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot harder than people think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, how many, I think of how, like other researchers who probably maybe they started out doing research in special populations and it was too hard to get participants or get funding or whatever. And so they just changed their research trajectory because it's more important to them to have, you know, job security or to get grant funding than it is to really help those special populations. So there are a lot of different ways that, you know, being a special population can manifest in research and how that affects kind of the rest of the world and rest recommendations and stuff like that. But yeah, I think certainly with, you know, pregnancy fitness and pregnancy exercise, I think it's becoming a lot more accepted and women are more, I think too, because women are strength training more before they get pregnant and they're being exposed to that more than they were before. It's still not great, but it's better than it was. So I think going into pregnancy, women who are active are, have a better sense of their fitness, um, which I think is helpful, but then also really confusing because you, again, you're fearful and pregnant women are vulnerable because they want to protect their baby. And, you know, I, I didn't really understand that until I was pregnant and I know so much about exercise. I know so much about fitness, but I was still scared and with no like guidance and no one able to tell me like, what RPE should I be working at? Like what, what should I really be paying attention to whenever I'm lifting? Because I want to still train like, like heavier. Like, is that okay? Like, I got nothing. I was like, here's a prenatal yoga class. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. like that's all women do is walk and do yoga, which is fine. Right. But you, you were lifting Atlas stones. Yeah. Two months yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah. just providing like that little bit of guidance, it's not that it's revo- like the workouts are revolutionary. It's the fact that someone can tell you with confidence that this is safe to do. And I know this because these are based on recommendations. This is based on the data. This is not because I'm just making it up. And if, if I would have had that, I would have been like, oh, thank, like, good. Like someone who 
someone who I trust is giving me this guidance so that I don't have to go on the internet and look for it or go to this internet fitspo who has a lot of followers and just happens to be pregnant, but actually knows nothing about training pregnant women and do what she's doing. That was like all I saw. So yeah. So are you suggesting Britt that we should move with confidence? (laughs) (laughs) I want everyone to move with confidence. Yes. If you guys don't know that's Brittany's business tagline, which is perfect that she just casually put that in there without thinking because it just shows, it just shows how on brand you are. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, yeah, it's just it, that that whole mindset of just being able to do things, not even even if you're not fully confident in your ability to do it at first, that you have enough, you you are able to try it. You have enough confidence to able to try because you're able to try it. Whether that be someone educating you about it so that you feel like you can do it safely, like exercising in pregnancy, or whether you try it first and then fail and then figure it out. Like I think everyone can get there. Um, and I think that it can be life-changing. So I do want that for everyone. So for all of the, the women who are expecting, um, that are postnatal or that, you know, know at some point in their life, they're going to be pregnant and they want to continue exercise. If you had to summarize the messy middle approach, like what's the big takeaway, where should women go to seek advice for pre and postnatal exercise besides your program, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, one of the things that I think is really important and I've, I was just saying, I don't think I've ever talked about the pelvic floor so much as I have in the last year, but, um, pelvic floor physical therapy is a niche of physical therapy that is, could be very, very, very helpful for pregnancy and postpartum. And it's unfortunately not standard of care in America, but, if you are pregnant or looking to become pregnant and after you have a baby, definitely seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist is very, very helpful. Um, I went after I had a baby, I didn't go before and I actually wish that I would have. Um, but after I had the baby, I wanted to just go get like checked out. Cause I was like, I don't really know. I had a C-section, so I didn't deliver vaginally, but I still felt like something wasn't quite right. Um, and they were able to do a full exam on me. And for those of you who don't know, like when you go to a pelvic floor physical therapist, they do an internal exam as well. So one of the things that's told to pregnant women all the time is like, do Kegels, do Kegels, do Kegels, do Kegels. And I would say that maybe not do a million Kegels and not do no Kegels. In the middle is you might have a tight pelvic floor and doing a ton of, (laughs) and doing a ton of Kegels might actually be worse for you, which was me. I had a, I had a, it's, it's common in really active women, actually. My pelvic floor was very tight. And so doing more Kegels was actually going to exacerbate that issue for me. Honestly, for the non-pregnant women, I've gone to PT and I was told the same thing. I had, I was having, I was having issues with running and they, even Taylor Echo, I've talked to her about this before because she's, well, she'll be on. And that was something I didn't even think about. I've never had a baby. You know what I mean? And they were like asking me all these things. I was like, Hmm, I had to do like relaxation exercises rather than diet. And I'm like, you never think I'm a fit, healthy, active. I never thought my pelvic floor was an issue. And then I went to PT and they were like, asked me these things. And I was like, I don't remember how to baby. I thought this was just pregnant woman. Yeah. And then they were like, no, like yeah. it's your woman. Like this yeah. is a thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I, I just feel like that's never talked about. I'm like, I never knew. I would have never thought that before. So I think, you know, that can be really helpful. Obviously if you 
are looking for guidance for exercise, finding someone who specializes in pre and postnatal. So I got my certification through Girls Gone Strong. And actually on their website, they have a database of every coach that is certified through them. So if you're looking for like an in-person coach or I should say like what they offer whenever you type in your area or if you're looking for a coach and you can find someone that's certified in pre and postnatal um, to work with. A lot of people prefer working in person for that specifically. And it is nice to kind of be able to, you know, do certain things in person um, if you're looking for one-on-one care. But yeah, definitely finding someone who has some experience or at least knowledge. They don't necessarily have to be certified in pre and postnatal. I would recommend it, but at least having someone who is familiar with training pre and postnatal women specifically. Um, There are a lot more on Instagram now that I see that post really helpful information. A lot of public floor physical therapists on Instagram that I think is really, really helpful talking about diastasis recti and kind of how to heal that and myths around training postpartum and how to heal that correctly. Um, I think that those things are all really, really helpful and advice that I, you know, would give to anyone who asks me, like, what should I do? Like I'm pregnant or I'm postpartum. This is my experience. Like, what do you suggest fitness wise? That's the biggest thing that I can say is, you know, seeking that out sooner rather than later. If you can, I understand that that's a, like a privilege to be able to do that in and of itself. But if you can, many doctors, you just have to ask for recommendation and they'll give you one. Like I just told my doctor like, Hey, I would like to go to public floor physical therapy just to get checked out. And they just like wrote me a script and it was no problem. So, um, that would be my suggestion. And I we, definitely would recommend that. We would love to put those resources in the show notes for our listeners. If you could send those by afterwards, um, the, the name of your certification database that they can look up and as well as any accounts you'd recommend. Uh, cause we know that there's probably people like you who are searching for people doing this stuff before and can't find them, you know? Oh yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to give people solid places to look instead of you know, having. No, this to- would be great. So when people message me asking me about pregnancy and running, I can be yeah. like, well, I've never had a baby, but yeah. I can thank you to Grit and all the amazing resources that she has. Cause I do get asked that quite a bit. And I, I really am cautious on who I refer people to. Cause I mean, I'm not certified and I don't have that firsthand experience. That would be amazing. So talking though about Instagram itself, you have been, you just had your official one year fits Instagram anniversary. Um, and so when did you decide that you wanted, I know you mentioned about, you know, you're kind of using your personal Instagram a little bit, but when did you make the decide that you were going to create that separate platform as an educator? And then how has your online presence evolved in your first year, which we know is a lot, there's a lot of growth that yeah, happens during that. Yeah. Um, so I guess I decided whenever I was finishing my postdoc was really when I was like, okay, like I'm, cause that was a full-time position and I was switching to this part-time position and I knew that I would be kind of now like making my dream of being a, this hybrid professional come to life. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to make a separate account because what I felt was happening on my personal Instagram was one, it, I felt like I was just talking to my friends, like everyone that followed me on there. It seemed like I knew personally, like either from bodybuilding or from, I have, you know, gone to three different universities at this point. So I had just have a very large social network, I guess. And it just felt like, I don't, these aren't the people that I actually want to be, not that I don't want to educate them, but when I do offer services, like that's not really who I'm selling to. Um, so I, that was basically when, so I created Doc Brit Fit and was like, this is going to be like my professional Instagram. Like it will be public. 
so that anyone can follow me and, you know, I will make it educational. And I wasn't really sure, like, what I was going to post. I was, I think my first post was like, I'm going to post a little bit of everything. Like, you know, I'm starting this new career and I'm pregnant. So I'm going to be a mom. And, you know, I just was like, I'll just educate people on whatever. Like I knew some of what I was going to do, but like I had so many different interests that I wasn't really sure. And I think that over the last year, I've kind of narrowed it down to, I can still post about all my different interests, but almost in a um, logical way, a way that makes sense um, so that it doesn't seem like scatterbrained. It's it's like organized scatter because I do want to talk about all these different parts of my life because I think that they help all different people. Um, and when I was working with Tatum, actually, when I did my branding, it was nice to kind of like, I had it narrowed down finally. It was like, okay, I'm talking to other coaches who might be in the industry who want to learn from me because I have my PhD in kinesiology and I do know a lot about exercise, but I'm also talking to moms because I'm starting this program for moms. I have my certification in pre and postnatal fitness and I want to educate them as well. And it kind of like was, I was able to kind of figure out who my audience was because my following was actually growing and I was figuring out what people were responding to, I guess. Like there were a couple of times that I posted stuff that I was oh, like, this is such a good post. Like, it took me so long. Yeah, it took me so long to make it in Canva. Like, oh, and then it's like, like, I was like, okay. So it's been a lot of trial and error, to be honest. But I think when I, after I had Benji and started sharing more like um, vulnerable posts, I guess, about just my transition to motherhood, um, that kind of opened up a lot of things for me. I think people just felt a little bit more connected uh, to me as a human because I think, and, I, and I've always kind of struggled with this. I feel like when you're getting your PhD and both of you are, are, so you can relate to this, people are like, oh, wow, like you're so awesome getting your PhD. They almost feel like they can't relate to you or like that you're not a real person. And I'm like, hey, like I'm doing these awesome things, but like I'm still like human I have normal human emotions like this is a normal human experience for me like I'm not exempt from feeling anything just because I am successful so I think you know motherhood kind of allowed me to connect with people in that way um, because it is such a shared experience with so many other women um so I, I kind of transitioned then and started sharing more stories about that and my experience with that and that lended itself well to kind of the rest of my content because, you know, exercise is applicable to everyone who follows me, but then I could sprinkle in some stuff that's specific to pre and postnatal women and sprinkle that into some mindset stuff around like returning to training after having a baby because I was experiencing that and my experience was not what I thought it was going to be. And I was an athlete. So talking about, you know, being an athlete and then having to like start over post-pregnancy. Like there were so many different things that I was actually just going through and that I wasn't like an expert on by any means. Like I'm not an expert in motherhood, but uh, like I could share my experience and help people connect and know like, hey, like this is a normal feeling that I'm having. Um, and I think that helped a lot whenever I did launch the Busy Mom Blueprint because I had shared that, but I was also educating. So I think it made me more, more relatable. Um, and then 
gave me the trust of the people that I was helping so that I could give them this like really great science-based information without having to like jam it down their throats. They were willing to listen to me because they were like, hey, like she really, she really is trying to help because she went through this and she's a mom and she gets it. So like that's why she's doing this. And it it really did like kind of just naturally go that way. I didn't really try to make that happen, but um, it kind of did organically, which was cool. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think vulnerability when it's authentic, not like the fake vulnerability that people do, but like when you're truly just put being yourself and sharing your experience on Instagram, I, I think people really underestimate because you feel awkward sharing about yourself and talking about yourself, but you were sharing an experience that so many women, I think it's taboo to talk about or they're shame for talking about, or they, there's this like blinder to it. So you, they don't know other women are experiencing it because of the messages that culture gives you. So with that being said, I know that like that, I mean, we see it like the authenticity of you and your experience and how raw that is for you, but also it makes us love you even more. And we know you personally, but for the other women listening to this or moms that are like, you know, feeling the same way you are, what was, what would be like the one bit of advice that you would share with them on the feeling and the urge to have it all together? Um, cause I know that's something you talk about yeah. again. Page. Yeah. I would say that like most people don't, and, and <laughs> like even people who think they have together, everyone has bad moments and bad days. Like, no, I feel like, especially when you're going through a really big life transition, like motherhood, it's really easy to do, I mean, social media in general lends itself to like com- the comparison thing. Like you're constantly comparing. But I think if you are in a super vulnerable state, like transitioning to mother, where it's a, it's a new role for you. You just met this new human who you now have to care for. You have all these new responsibilities. Like one day you don't, the next day you do. There are so many things that you need to learn to just be gentle with yourself and that eventually it will happen. It might not happen as the same, the same speed for you as it does someone else. Like I, one of my good friends, a colleague of mine, um, we had ended up having our babies the same day. So our babies are the exact same age. And even our experiences have been so different and we have so many things in common. Like we were friends before we had babies and, you know, good friends. She has her PhD as well. Like we have so many things in common, but her experience is still very different from mine. And I think we've done a good job at not comparing to each other, but you know, I could very easily be like, Oh, like she has this part. So together and like compare that. And I think that's where a lot of women struggle. And a lot of my friends who are mothers say that too. Like, Oh, but like, I'm not a, like what I'm not like a good mom or whatever. And I'm like, why do you think that? Like, because you saw someone else doing something that you have associated with them being a good mom. Like, is that what it means to be a good mom to you? Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of where you have to figure yourself out because for me, like I knew that I didn't want to be a stay at home mom. I knew I wanted a career, but you know, I had Benji and then coronavirus happened. So I was a stay at home working mom. Like I had to transition my class for this semester. So I was kind of doing, I was pushed into this role of being a stay at home mom and I didn't, really want that. So I had to figure out how to navigate that. And that wasn't easy. Like that was not easy for me to do, but you know, I gave myself grace or at least I tried to. And now that we're, you know, I don't know, four months into quarantining or whatever of all this pandemic stuff. Quarantining. (laughs) I have a better grip on it than I did, but it's still kind of like, we're all just figuring it out. So I think, you know, to go back to the original question of like having it all together, I think 
reframing your definition of having it all together is key. Like, are you safe? Are you healthy? Is your family healthy? Uh, how's your mental health? How's your physical health? Just checking in and kind of lowering the standard of having it all together, I think is actually really important. And I think that the fact that you share what it looks like to not have it all together is that, you know, in one end, we don't have enough women sharing things that they're confident and proud about, but we also don't have enough women sharing the things that we're struggling with and insecure. Like we're, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. And I think the fact that you're willing to say, Hey, this is hard. I don't know what I'm doing or I struggled with this is I think women need that so much, especially now in this pandemic experience where like everyone thinks everything they're doing is a failure. And you're like, Hey, we're, we have a roof on our heads. We're eating, we're breathing. <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone's moving forward. Yeah. And then it can still get better. Like I'm, I'm having a really, I had a really hard time with stuff, but like, I'm still like working hard. Like I can still get, you can still get things done. It might not be in the like picture perfect way that you imagine that it would happen. Like in my mind, I was like, okay, like I'm going to start doctorate fit and then like, this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then Benji's going to be born. And then like, I had like this, you know, timeline and like idea of what it was going to be like. And it's nothing like that <laughs> at all. But if I would have, if I were constantly like trying to make it be that I wouldn't have gone, it wouldn't have happened. So yeah, I think I, I remember the, that blog that you met reference Kate, where I was like talking about, you know, I didn't want to pursue tenure track. I think one of the other things I said in there was like, I, it bothers me that so many people like share personal development stories, like after the fact, like they only share like the success story. And I love hearing success stories, but it's also like every time they share a success story, they're also like, but this was also happening like this whole time. And like, and it was like, Oh really? Like I've been following you for seven years. And like, I never knew that that happened to you. And I know that not everyone feels comfortable sharing like stuff like that. And I think, you know, obviously there's boundaries around that, but I think if you're far enough past something and you can, I think that it's important to share that because then people see that, you know, you weren't just this like overnight success, like you worked through these hard things and that actually helped you get to your eventual success. Um, So that was one of the goals for my page originally was to share kind of this uncharted waters of becoming a mom and starting a career and all these things because I didn't really see a lot of people doing that yeah we need more people sharing the messy middle yeah <laughs> like like the actual messy middle. like the yeah. actual <laughs> messy nitty-gritty nasty yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay we we have to end the podcast by deep diving into your busy mom blueprint because it is so exciting to see you come out with that and I know a lot of people are excited for the program like you said you're keeping things small but you know, who knows when, when the next wave goes around, this podcast will be out in September. So if people are listening and you have open enrollment, what can they expect? Um, and, and what is, you know, sell it, sell it to us. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so the Bismarck blueprint is a, a monthly fitness subscription and there are three options. So there's a prenatal option for pregnant women, a postpartum option for women who have been medically cleared to exercise, um, until, up to a year postpartum, depending on your progress. And then there's a fit for life program that is for any stage of motherhood. So I also say that that program can be for non-birth parents as well, because it's not specific to healing postpartum. It's just designed to be a three day strength training 
workouts that are 30 to 45 minutes so that you can fit them in in small blocks of time with an optional, you know, there are optional circuits and things that you can add as well, but they are strength training workouts. So each one of those programs has three days of strength training. The prenatal one starts, you know, from the beginning of the first trimester, depending, usually women find out they're pregnant somewhere between like two to six weeks, somewhere in there. So it's adjusted to start with that. And then it gradually progresses all the way through to the end of pregnancy. So the volume kind of tapers off and towards the middle to the end, you do a lot more stuff that's going to prepare you for your belly getting bigger, um, maintaining strength and making sure that you're doing everything safely. And then the postpartum one is the opposite. So it takes you from that very base level of you know strength that you have after giving birth um, and slowly increases from there. So I suggest that women who have already been exercising for at least six months postpartum would probably just jump into the Fit for Life program um, because that would be you know where you would want to start. You wouldn't want to start from the beginning of the postpartum program if you've already been exercising. But you can join at any time. So even if you had kids like 10 years ago, the Fit for Life program would be totally appropriate. It's just basic strength training. There's something like, you know, unique about it and that it's like healing, helping you heal from birth or anything. So it's a monthly fitness subscription. So with that, you get monthly workouts. This is for all three of the programs. You get monthly workouts. Uh, there's a private Facebook group that has just the members from the Busy Mom Blueprint in it. Um, the... I send a monthly newsletter. So each month um, I interview an expert outside of myself, obviously, that has something to do with either pre and postnatal fitness or nutrition or mental health. So um, I share, it's, I guess, essentially like a podcast, but it's a YouTube video that I just share with, with my audience and it's specific to tips for moms. Um, access to me. So I'm in the Facebook group, you know, every day or messaging with people on the app that I use. I use Trainerize to, you know, give all the workouts and stuff. So I message people individually through there and they ask questions. Um, I've had a couple, actually a couple women who have gotten pregnant since they started the program. So they're switching from the Fit for Life That's program amazing. now to the prenatal program. How perfect. I know, right? I love so it's that. Actually, it's actually looking at lifelong yeah. clients. Yeah, it's, oh it's, it's so cool. So um, yeah, you can switch around between programs. Um, so yeah, I'm super excited. It just, it just launched last month. But um, yeah, hoping to get a lot of strong moms out of it. So Oh, heck yeah. We know you will. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Before we wrap up, I mean, I feel like we have deep dove into everything, but did we leave anything out that you would like to mention, um, to our listeners before we wrap up the show? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think if you guys can't tell already, I'm an open book. I will talk about anything. So if anything that you listen to on this podcast, you want to chat with me about, like you can feel free to shoot me an email or slide, like slide into my DMS and talk to me about any of this stuff, whether it's you know, any of the academic stuff we talked about or pre and postnatal stuff. I love talking to people. So, um, and I love connecting with people. So feel free to reach out if any of that resonated with you. Yes. And all of her like contact information will be linked below. So you guys can check that out if you're listening. Um, Brittany, to close this episode, it is time to play this or that. So while Ooh, yeah. we truly believe... <laughs> <laughs> While we truly believe that life exists in the messy middle for the sake of fun and irony, we'd like to close the show by forcing you, Brittany, to rapid fire choose between contrasting things. So today's this or that items were specifically selected for you. There will be 10 rounds. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. TikTok or Twitter? TikTok. 
<laughs> you are good at TikTok. <laughs> Teaching or coaching? Ooh, coaching. Journaling or gratitude lists? Journaling. Enneagram or Myers-Briggs? Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram <laughs> 3, by the way. Yeah. Uh-huh. Strong man or bodybuilding? You've got to choose. Oh, <laughs> strong man. All right. Well, here's a fun one. Upper or lower Bentley? Oh, <laughs> oh upper. For those who don't know, because we went to Lock Haven, we had one food court and it had like the lower part that you could like get stuff to go and the upper part was was like the buffet, but it was like a war between the two. Yeah, so. upper Bentley. Bentley all day. Yeah. I need to know where Alyssa yeah. stands on this. Up yeah, as well? well, I was the weird girl with Tupperware in her backpack, but I was upper Bentley because you could eat as much as you wanted. And then you could put the food in the Tupperware. In the Tupperware. <laughs> yeah, I stole a lot of stuff from upper Bentley. I was really poor. Oh my God, I love that. I okay. feel that. <laughs> all right. Sun hat or sunglasses? Sunglasses. One more fun one. Dr. Dixon or Dr. Bauer? Ooh. I know, right? <laughs> Dr. Dixon. Yeah. He's like our academic dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, although I'm pretty certain that, like, since I'm really, like, beefed up, I'm probably, like, bigger than him now. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I'm beefed him now, and I'm, like, we're not, I'm not very big. Oh, he would be so proud of us both, though. <laughs> we'll send him this, and he'll be like... <laughs> Yeah, all of the old faculty are going to, like, start getting around word that uh, you two are together talking crap on you. No, I'm kidding. I love that. All right. Two more. I love how not rapid fire this is. I know. I interrupted. Sorry. No, no. That's no. It's all of us. We can't keep it together. All right. Leggings or sweatpants? Sweatpants. Lectures or lab? Lab. Yeah. We figured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, Britt. Well, thank you so much for all of your time. You're incredible. Obviously, you're the first one, the best one. No pressure at all, but you did amazing. And so if you guys love this messy conversation with Britt, go ahead, follow her on everything. Check out her stuff, especially if you're a mom. But please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and please download our episode. We're going to pick a reviewer every week for our reviewer of the week, and we'll announce it on Instagram. So when you leave your review, go ahead and leave your handle, and we'll announce it, and you'll get a free product from anything from the Little List lineup. So make sure you leave your IG handle in there, leave a review, or send us a screenshot in the DMs of the Messy Middle podcast on Instagram. We're going to pick a reviewer of the week. Every single week, you can get anything that I offer that isn't the littlest method. So make sure you do that because I know you want the goods. So, Kate? Yeah, follow Doc Britfit on all of her platforms. She has the same handle for everything and they're all linked in the description. Um, and of course, for more information on the Busy Mom Blueprint or to sign up, head to docbritfit.com. Britt, thank you so much for being our very first podcast guest. We are so honored to know you. And if you will, help sign us out. Yeah, All right. Thank you guys so much for having me. Of course. All right. Everybody, as always, we want you to live well, demand better, and stay messy. Yeah. We'll catch you guys next week. 